Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, as we hear your word, uh, please uh, stir our hearts, uh, teach us, uh, give us courage to be faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, looking around the world in the last six months, it's been a bit tumultuous in, in different ways, and, and maybe you've had the thought, I wish God would put this world right. There's been the lockdowns and grief with, with, with COVID. There's been local flooding uh, that you've experienced. Russia and China are flexing their military muscles and the economic outlook looks fairly messed up. Maybe this new governor will see better days, but who knows? Whichever way the future unfolds, I want to encourage you that when the going gets tough, it's, it's Christians who have a capacity uh, to come good as we roll up our sleeves and serve others in the name of Jesus. We're called to be a blessing to the world in, in word and, and deed. And as we serve, we see the Lord at work in us and, and, and through us. Our, our faith grows as, as we flex those uh, faith muscles. <laughs> and we serve knowing the outcome. We know that Jesus has won the victory. We know that the future is secure. And really, we have nothing to lose uh, when we step out. So be encouraged. In our series, we come to 1 Samuel 20. And maybe you remember where we've come from. I thought I'd do it in a, nut in a nutshell. Remember, Israel was formed a as a nation uh, under Moses, uh, the Exodus, the time uh, in the wilderness, they enter the land and become tribal pockets of people who sometimes are doing well with the Lord, sometimes falling uh, aside in unfaithfulness during the time of the judges. As they ease out of that, they're, they're wanting a king to be like the other nations, and um, they get the mighty Saul, who has potential but um, becomes more caught up with being a king than being a servant of God. And um, by the time we get to chapter 20, uh, Saul has been rejected by God uh, as king and God's called Samuel to anoint David uh, as his, his chosen king. Yet Saul is consumed by jealousy and continues this cat and mouse sort of scenario trying to kill uh, David uh, across the countryside in the preceding chapters, in this chapter, and following chapters as well. Meanwhile, Saul's son, Jonathan, has become a good friend of David. And it's this friendship that I want to consider uh, the first thing uh, to focus on as we look at this chapter. So, friendship. David and Jonathan's friendship is special because of its de depth, but also its unlikeliness. Uh, Jonathan was a brave warrior in, in his own right. Uh, he's next in line for the throne. Yet he looks past all of this, and rather than seeing David as a competitor for the throne, they become close friends, one in spirit. We're told that Jonathan loved David as himself and made a covenant, a, a pledge of uh, uh, of love and loyalty with him. Uh, you might remember that from chapter 18. That may seem a little bit intense, uh, this friendship between the, these two guys, but 
I was, I was struck the other way by, um, I heard last week, a statistic that while having hundreds of Facebook friends, that 30% uh, of under 25-year-olds, which you can't, there's a few of you here, hopefully it's wrong with you, 30% of under 25-year-olds say they don't have a close friend. I think churches probably do better than that, but that's a general survey. So close friends I want to endorse as a good thing, and women tend to do friendships better, but I wonder how many of us here, um, young and old, have close trusting friendships with more than one person, or one or more people, men with men, with their mates, women with other women. We do well to have such close friends. And as I mulled over this, I thought probably the closest to a, like a, a long-term friend with history uh, that I have is a guy called Sean. I, I met in university in, in Townsville. I went up there to do marine biology and stayed on and became a math science teacher. But over the years, we've camped, we're, we've hitchhiked together, we've both done Bible college, we've met and know well each other's family, so there's a bit of history there. And uh, we used to meet and we, we sort of didn't want our friendship just to be superficial, like a lot of relationships, a lot of friendships we saw around. And so we, we used to ask each other um, the three questions when we met. Those, I can't remember the exact three questions at first, but after we got married, these are the ones we asked. How are you loving your wife? How are you dealing with sexual temptation? And how are you dealing with greed? And we'd talk about all sorts of other things and we'd pray together, but that really cut through the superficiality pretty quickly. When we meet, we'd, we'd talk turkey, we'd talk honestly, we'd talk deeply. Um, it takes, uh, I, I suppose, uh, you're taking a bit of a risk, you're being vulnerable, uh, you need an element of confidentiality and trust there. But... Um, yeah, it's, it's good to have a relationship there. And when one of us was being slack and fallen down in one, one area or another, we'd confess it and we'd uh, pray together and we'd hold each other accountable. So, you know, that covered everything from drinking to porn to greed to, you know, whatever. We don't often cover all those things nowadays, but it, it developed a relationship that continues to be honest, and I, I praise God for that. And I'm reminded in Proverbs 18, in verse 24, where it says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's worth more than gold. And these friendships don't happen, as, you, as I explained. You know, I, we deliberately built that friendship and so I wonder if you want that sort of friendship, how you might build it. Is there somebody you trust sufficiently to say, hey, look, let's, let's meet once a week and, and pray about things. Let's share about life. Let's share about our struggles. Let's hold each other accountable. Um, that's the best way to grow together. And um, when I read this uh, account of David and Jonathan, I, I see the depths there. And, and I, I think, wow. Uh, these guys worked it out. But I'm also aware how their relationship's being cast today in, in you know, today's sexual debates. Um, there's a, a lady, a Sydney journalist, actually, I think this 
her book was in the New York um, bestsellers, uh, called The Secret Chord, which looks at Dave and Jonathan's relationship as a gay relationship. And um, I can sort of see where she gets it from because, you know, there's some pretty intimate stuff happening here. Dave and Jonathan, they're being described as one in spirit. There's oaths and covenants that they make between them. Um, verse 17, we read that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. In verse 41, they kissed each other and wept as David uh, left, um, fleeing for his life from, from Saul. And then in, in 2 Samuel 1.26, on the news of Jonathan's death, David laments with these words, and there's a whole sort of a prayer. Uh, so in there he says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. And so you can see where Geraldine Brooks gets her idea, and so many others over the centuries or more recently have done that. But I don't think it's a gay relationship for, for a couple of reasons. In the Middle East, it is really a, appropriate and commonplace for men to kiss. Um, in, in white Australia, we're very reserved, some would say repressed. Um, when I've travelled in Africa, you see men walking along holding hands or sitting down holding hands. Um, a, a affection doesn't have to be sexual. It, it can just be a, a, a friendship, a, you know, a, a, a trusting, caring relationship that men and women have, might have with each other. In the West, we tend to be uh, quite caught up that everything goes to sex. Um, but we read these passages through these Western eyes and we make, I think, wrong judgments. So rather than seeing this as evidence of a gay relationship, I can understand why David and Jonathan's friendship was exceptional. I mean, these guys would have hung out a lot. They were on the battlefield together often, camping out. Um, they were warriors and adventurers. They were both accomplished in you know, bravery and life-threatening situations. So, you know, they'd experienced a lot together. There was a closeness. And in contrast, um, Wives in that culture, particularly amongst the sort of wealthy, powerful, whatever, um, were mere pawns in political alliances so often, rather than equal partners. And case in point is, um, remember when Goliath was terrorising the Philistines and, and Saul offered his firstborn daughter as a trophy for whoever would kill that ugly giant Goliath. And you can imagine the poor woman. Um, what was her name? Merib was her name. Uh, being passed off to whoever could kill a giant. Um, <laughs> it's not pretty. So um, maybe that's where the term trophy wife comes from. I don't know. Um, and there's not much of a record of, uh, of David's meaningful sort of relationships uh, with his wives, and he had six of them um, on record. Well, it might have been eight. But if you've got that many wives, I suppose you don't hang out with one enough to really get to know them that well. <laughs> and, you know, if you're on the run for half your life and then you're king, you're a busy man. But, um, yeah, so David and Jonathan, they had something special. But I, I just want to 
further to this gay issue, um, it, it's likely that someone sitting here or somebody listening um, online um, will be same-sex attracted. And I just want to say I'm sorry if you've ever felt judged or alienated by church or, or, or Christians. We haven't always had a good track record of loving like Jesus. And uh, I want to say Jesus died for all. Um, you're a precious person made in the image of God. And I'm sure you have much to offer uh, his people. And I hope that it, if that's you, that you'll find people here to work through uh, those issues, what it means to follow Jesus with that same-sex attraction. But I don't think that's what's going on for Dave and Jonathan. My second point is shorter, and maybe a bit of a diversion from particularly loving God's king and the big picture, but uh, it's in the text, and, and that I've called it fake news. Um, in verse 6, David instructs Jonathan that if his absence is noticed at the feast, and it was noticed on the second day of the feast by Saul, that um, he's to lie about David's whereabouts. And as a Christian, when there's lying involved, I, you know, prickle up a bit and think, you know, that's wrong. But as I ponder this, my mind goes to how in Exodus chapter 1, when Pharaoh is slaughtering all the Israelite babies, the, the midwives lie to Pharaoh about, you know, the whole, the, these babies just get born before we get to them sort of thing and uh, saves those babies from being slaughtered. And then there's the instance of Rahab um, lying to the soldiers. She's hiding the Israelite spies. And in Hebrews 11, um, this is described as an act of faith. So when is lying sin? Well, I take it that what I've mentioned are exceptions to the rule, um, where it's okay lying to someone who has evil intent or no moral or legal right to know the truth. And, you know, the classic example is when the Gestapo are knocking on the door in World War II, you know, trying to find Jews being hidden. And, you know, you open the door and they say, are there any Jews in here? You know, you're, you're going to lie if there's Jews in there. And we understand that and we would be horrified if anything else happened. Um, I think of a current situation where I'm dealing with some fairly sensitive refugee stuff where we're trying to get um, a lot of orphans from a war-torn country. And um, we're keeping that pretty quiet because we don't want people who would oppose that um, back in, in that country to block um, these refugees leaving and block their visas and, uh, and all of that. So. If somebody I didn't know and trust was drilling into this, trying to get information out of me, I'd misdirect them or I'd, uh, I might even lie. Um, and I think, yeah, that probably falls in that exceptional category as well. But the problem in our society isn't that. <laughs> they are exceptions. The problem is that fake news is everywhere. Political spin, we heard a little bit in recent weeks, political spin, which is effectively misdirection and sometimes lying. Um, Casual lying to avoid responsibility just flows off some people's lips. And, uh, you know, that's wrong. Um, some Christians, even, are so committed to telling the truth that they're indiscreet gossips <laughs> in the name of telling the truth. Um, so we need a bit of discernment on that, don't we? 
Our witness of Jesus should not involve a tongue that is loose with the truth. People of integrity, let our words be spoken with wisdom and love. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. And let Jesus be honoured in our lives. The third point here, my third musing, concerns love and loyalty to God's anointed king. David, in, in these chapters, is described as a man after God's heart, and I take that to mean a man that is especially chosen by God. Sure, David also sought God's heart, but David was pretty fickle at times. He had blood on his hands. Uh, nevertheless, David, earlier anointed, uh, will be crowned as king of ancient Israel. And his good rule, it was a good rule, back then gave glimpses of a better world, of God's kingdom. But it's Jonathan I want to look at here. We, what we see in Jonathan is a model for us of, not just in terms of friendship with David, but love and loyalty to God's king. He sacrificed his own birthright. He risked his own life because of his love of David, God's anointed king. Um, a couple of chapters earlier, he'd made a covenant, a binding agreement with David, and he'd, Jonathan had given David his prince's robe, his tunic, his belt, his sword, his bow. You know, uh, I think it would have been pretty significant um, to, to be given and, and carrying uh, all that Jonathan's gear. It's shown how they embraced and they wept and kissed uh, in, in this chapter. He wasn't half-hearted in his devotion. He really loved God's king. And we can learn from Jonathan. Because um, there would come a descendant of David. And I thought it was pretty cool that the, the uh, Luke 3 reading had that, as long as you did very well reading that out. <laughs> um, but it showed the direct line of descent. Um, Jesus on the line of David. Jesus was a descendant, a, a, a son of David. I thought it was really cool that John the Baptist's words about if you've got two tunics, give one away, and instructions to soldiers as well as um, connections with the Samuel passage, but also with Anglicare. But this descendant of David, uh, Jesus, would establish an eternal kingdom. And by his bloodshed, with a crown of thorns uh, upon his head, uh, he would be declared God's chosen king over all eternity. And not an imperfect rule like David's, but the rule of God, uh, which humanity and ultimately all of creation would be restored. Jesus is the one through whom everything we know has been created and is sustained. Can't get much bigger than that. Jesus who knows what it means to be a human, to suffer life on this planet, temptation. He knows us through and through. Jesus who died to take upon himself our brokenness, our shame, the penalty for our sin. The more you think about Jesus, the more impressed you become. Jesus who conquered death, who defeated evil. 
He's now established as God's king over a new world order which will one day see a new reality of a new heavens and new earth. That's our future as God's people. Those who follow this risen Jesus are to live and to do and to speak of Jesus as our king. Now, in Australia we don't really give much thought to kings and queens and royalty, but you understand Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is everything that that sort of notion of a king is in a good way, even to lay down our lives for him as he did for us. I've always thought of following Jesus as a great adventure and I've sort of thought if Jesus has my back, if he's forgiven my sin, if he's given his spirit and he's with me on a daily basis and he's gone before me and prepared a future for me, there's nothing to lose by, you know, stepping out. I, I should be and I work on it. A long way to go, but we can be and we should be working towards being the, that generous, forgiving, kind, adventurous, creative, innovative risk taker like David and Jonathan were in battle. We've got our own battles. We've got our own lives uh, to live and be a witness for him. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, what sort of heroes you have. I hope they're not just Marvel characters. Um, some of my heroes have been Christians like William Wilberforce, who fought for 40 years in Parliament in England to abolish slavery. But one that stuck in my mind was Jim Elliot, amazing Christian man, set up with some of his mates, flew a plane into the jungles of Ecuador in South America, and the day he landed, he was killed. <laughs> um, he'd done a lot of ministry before then, but, and he'd written some stuff, and one of his words is, he or she is no fool who gives what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. Giving of ourselves, giving of the resources God's given us. We, you know, our life is sort of on lend in a sense, but as we serve Jesus, we gain so much. We gain an eternity of riches, of rewards, of relationship with our Lord. And Jim did die. He gave his life. My Christian adventure has taken me from teaching in indigenous communities to coming back to, to, to Sydney, uh, pastoring, but also setting up a scripture board and setting up a refugee charity and settling Syrian refugees. Maybe I'm a bit of a sort of junkie for doing different sorts of things, but you know, I, I like the thought of waking up in the morning and saying, God, what's in store today? I'm saved by grace through faith. Um, I'm God's workmanship created to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for me to walk in. You know, I, I want to be on the move. And that's set up some pretty exciting things. So I want to encourage you to bloom where you're planted in Richmond. You don't have to go overseas. You don't have to go anywhere else. You might, but to show the love of Jesus in your community. Um, I don't know. Are you in a sports team? Are you coaching a sports team? Are you in a book club? Um, 
a running club or, or, or the gym, a volunteer at Karen Allen House in, in the Anglicare Op Shop, whatever, there's things you're involved in the community. Might you see that as your mission field? And pray like, we expect the missionaries to pray, don't we? <laughs> we expect them to look into each day how they can serve the Lord. To pray that God will soften hearts, open ears, give you boldness, that you might be able to share your faith in an appropriate way with those people you rub shoulders with on a daily basis. Bloom where you're planted. And as we step out of our tight circle of Christian friends, we see that God is keen to answer our prayers, that uh, he does open opportunities. As we pray the prayer Jesus taught us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're actually pledging ourselves in service to bring glimpses of a better world, bearing witness of Jesus in word and deed, showing people the kindness of God and drawing them to a point where they too respond in a declaration of faith. So in conclusion, I want you to grow in your love of God's King, Jesus. And that might, and I hope you'll be encouraged to deepen your friendships that you have, accountable friendships, speaking the truth and love in your everyday, um, everyday lives, and ultimately, it's about loving God and loving your neighbour through generous, self-sacrificing lives, a blessing to others and offering them a glimpse of a better world. I try and do that at the moment through Anglicare. You can do it in, in the life God's given you and the connections you have. And you can work together as a community here at Richmond Anglican Church to, to be that blessing, to be that light. God bless you in that. Cheers.